You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the October 2021 edition of Heart Sounds. This is the podcast where I let you listen in on some of the interviews the TCTMD journalists did to pull together their print stories. And this month we've got news from the Viva and EAX meetings, neither of which we were able to attend in person. Looking at you, Barcelona. This month I'm also doling out a dose of myocarditis post-vaccination, a dash of coronary calcium and chest pain, a serving of social vulnerability as it pertains to CV risk, and polishing that off with a DOAC bleeding comparison. Ready? Let's jump in. Getting a handle on the myocarditis risk following mRNA vaccination has been a big priority for healthcare organizations around the world these last few months, prompting researchers to crack open the datasets available to them. Some of the biggest studies to date were published this month in the New England Journal of Medicine and in JAMA Internal Medicine. One study estimated that the risk of acute myocarditis was 5.8 per million double-dosed adults, drawing on data from the Kaiser Permanente Southern California Integrated Health System. In another, based on 2.5 million people aged 16 and older vaccinated within the largest healthcare organization in Israel, the estimated incidence after receipt of at least one dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine was 2.3 per 100,000 people. A third paper based on Israeli Ministry of Health records concluded that the rate of definite or probable myocarditis ranges from 1 in 26,000 in males to 1 in 218,000 in females. To make sense of all these numbers and ratios, TCTMD's Todd Neal spoke with Vinay Gurugunpla of the University of California in San Francisco. He is also a JAMA Internal Medicine Editorial Fellow, and he had this to say. I think by and large, the, the take-home point from this study and all the other studies are this is a very rare side effect. You know, the vaccines are safe. Randomized control studies have shown that. Post-follow-up studies have shown that. Um, so I think that's the bottom line. You know, the vaccine is safe. It helps prevent infections. The side effect of myocarditis is rare. And as I was mentioning earlier, most people recover quite well. Um, I think one one other thing that was recently brought up in in another article was the rate of myocarditis in COVID infections and comparing that to the rate of myocarditis in the vaccine. And the data shows that that is a much higher rate of occurrence and kind of goes to show that, you know, COVID, you know, in addition to the numerous deleterious effects that have been documented, also has very negative effects on the heart. Um, so bottom line, the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risk by far. Could a calcium scan rule out coronary artery disease in the workup of chest pain? That is the question at the heart of a paper published in Jack Cardiovascular Imaging by Kuram Nasir of Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center in Texas. Note that I said a calcium scan, not CTA. Calcium tests are now accepted as a reasonable decision tool for identifying stable patients with coronary atherosclerosis who would benefit from statins, for example, but a CAC score is not typically used as a gatekeeper in patients with chest pain. To test whether a calcium scan might prove useful as an initial test in this setting, Nasir and colleagues reviewed results for more than 5,000 patients presenting to the emergency department with chest pain who were referred for cardiac CT angiography. All were deemed low risk for ACS based on a normal or non-diagnostic ECG, normal cardiac enzymes, and a TIMI score of 2 or less. 
Ultimately, more than half of this cohort had a calcium score of zero and no evidence of coronary disease on CT angio. But of the nearly 2,300 patients who did have a calcium score greater than zero, 77% had obstructive coronary disease and 12% had severe stenosis. TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon covered this study, and he spoke with several other experts who had some pushback for this idea. I hope you'll check out Mike's story. Here, however, is Nasir making the case for calcium tests in the setting of chest pain. Almost about 90% of all the nuclear scans that happen for chest pain assessment in our country are normal. And now if you look at the PROMISE study and other studies that clearly come that even people who are considered higher risk for chest pain would undergo a CT scan, only about 11% may have some obstructive disease and about only about 50% or less may have any plaque. And of course, you're not looking for plaque. That's not a primary prevention. So in essence, our current methodologies, which is the pretest probability of the disease, is very clear that it overestimates your risk. So it says, well, you are an intermediate risk, you should have an advanced imaging, but a significant amount of them are normal. Now, as you know, we are moving in a direction of value-based medicine. We don't have infinite resources and we have to be very prudent. What we have been suggested for a long time within the cardiology circles that maybe the simple, cheap, widely available, no radiation, calcium scanning can help as a gatekeeper and this is what i proposed in my editorial last year and jack that the chest pain guidelines should start incorporating that once again researchers are raising concerns that rivaroxaban carries a significantly higher risk of bleeding than do other direct oral anticoagulants in the Annals of Internal Medicine, Arnar Ingesen of the University of Iceland in Reykjavik compared bleeding among several thousand new users of apixaban, dabigatran, and rivaroxaban between 2014 and 2019. Per 100 person years, they found, rivaroxaban was associated with higher risks of both overall and major GI bleeding compared with apixaban. Those same patterns were seen with dabigatran, though the confidence intervals were wider, raising the possibility of a null effect, the researchers say. Speaking with TCTMD's Caitlin Cox, Ingeson pointed out that rivaroxaban's once-a-day formulation may be one reason why bleeding risk is increased, but on the other hand, a once-daily pill may also help with compliance. The problem, as Ingeson, as well as Craig January of the University of Wisconsin and Madison point out, is that there are no randomized head-to-head trials, leaving physicians to make their own decisions based on data from observational studies like this one. For January, who led the 2019 ACC AHA AFib guideline update, this data is compelling. If I'm asked the question, uh, which uh, NOAC do I use, uh, my answer to that is a very clear apixaban. All right, so I don't mince words uh, here when I'm asked if there's one I prefer. (laughs) The reason is bleeding risk with rivaroxaban. The second smaller one is there's a a fair amount of sort of GERD-like symptoms with dabigatran, Mm. Uh, so GI, stomach upset, 
And so my second drug of choice is still dabigatran, and my last drug of choice would be rivaroxaban. If I see, and I do, uh, AFib patients in my clinic on rivaroxaban, uh, I will either change them to a pixaban or I will r- recommend to their primary care provider that they switch them. A growing body of work points to social determinants of health as a driver of cardiovascular disease prevalence and outcomes. A paper published this month in Circulation adds to the literature by describing and testing a social vulnerability index score, which the authors say could be used to better identify groups at risk. As Yael Maxwell reported for TCTMD, the SVI score is made up of 15 attributes that are broken into four subcomponents, socioeconomic status, household composition and disability, minority status and language, and housing type and transportation. As Safi Khan of Houston Methodist Debakey Heart and Vascular Center in Texas and colleagues showed by stratifying U.S. counties by score, those with the highest scores by quartile had the highest overall rates of cardiovascular mortality, as well as deaths due to ischemic heart disease, stroke, hypertension, and heart failure. Yael spoke with Khan about what he hopes his paper adds in terms of finding concrete solutions. We have seen this signal over and over again that social determinants of health do influence cardiovascular disease and mortality. But what is more interesting is that this paper allowed us to kind of identify the hotspots. For instance, we figured out that southwestern and southeastern areas of U.S. are more prone to social vulnerabilities and hence, consequently, higher mortality. Secondly, this paper also allowed us to find out what uh, groups are most vulnerable and where we can actually achieve the maximum benefits uh, if we give major attention to those. For instance, we found women, non-Hispanic, Blacks, uh, residents of the rural counties had the maximum hit, but those are the target groups which can actually achieve or we can maximize the survival benefit by uh, putting more attention to them. As I mentioned early on, we've covered several subspecialty meetings this past month, both of them remotely, alas. TCTMD's Laura McEwen covered the Viva meeting, which was taking place in Las Vegas, and where a number of sessions sought to illuminate the imbalances in care for patients with peripheral artery disease. One of the talks given by Howard Julian of Penn Heart and Vascular Center in Philadelphia zeroed in on a troubling paradox. Compared with white patients, black patients with PAD who undergo peripheral revascularization have much more advanced disease at the time of their procedures and are less likely to receive necessary care afterwards, which might help avoid major limb amputation. As Laura has reported in the past for TCTMD, black Americans are far more likely than whites to experience a major amputation, many of which might have been avoided if patients had received earlier and better care, including referral for revascularization in the first place. Encouragingly, as Julian showed in his presentation at Viva, in-hospital outcomes following revascularization, such as procedural success, major vascular complications, and bleeding complications, were actually very similar between black and white patients. Where the paths diverged was in the cumulative rates of one-year re-interventions, which were approximately 60% lower in black patients. Here's part of Laura's conversation with Julian. 
Were you surprised at all by that, that, you know, once they're actually in a center where they can get the care, there were no differences, which seems reassuring, but, but then it's really not because on either side of that care, there's a problem. Yeah, I think it speaks to the high quality of care that is currently being provided when people get onto the table. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I th- but I think that in the time afterwards, when we don't really know the underlying cause, whether it's a lack of follow-up or whether it's a on the provider part, our perception of uh, sicker patients and a lack of willingness to pursue other revascularization options as aggressively, uh, a perceived uh, sickness or perceived worse outcomes uh, that leads to less aggressive care, that's what we don't know. I, I think further research is needed in order to, to determine whether or not this is a, a perception issue or it's a patients falling through the cracks issue. But regardless, the end outcome is that we are missing a very sick population that needs further care. I, myself, along with Michael Reardon, tuned in for the EACS meeting online. Mike, at the time, was already working on a story about the eagerly anticipated review of the EACS, ESE, Coronary Revascularization Guidelines, and specifically the advice for left main disease. And that tied in nicely with several meeting presentations. As Mike reported, we should see some details from that review at the upcoming AHA Congress in November. I myself pulled together a few talks drilling down into what role TAVI should play in younger, lower-risk patients. This is another hotly contested area of interest for TCTMD readers. In my story, you can find some fresh insights from the TVT registry showing the rapid growth of TAVI in low-risk patients in the U.S., as well as a provocative propensity-matched analysis from Germany's Gary Registry showing better five-year survival among patients treated with surgery as compared with transcatheter valves. After the meeting, I called up Bernard Prendergast of the Cleveland Clinic in London, England, who participated in the EACS-TAVI session. He offered this reminder as we wait for more data to come in. I think it's important that the surgeons continue to remind the interventional cardiologists of the importance of long-term durability. We all know that deep down, but interventional cardiologists have a a shorter attention span in terms of new technologies and new procedures. But we really do need the five, the eight, and the 10-year long-term outcome data from both registries and randomized control trials so that we can be utmost confidence when we speak to our younger low-risk patients about the best option. That is that for the October edition of Heart Sounds. Find all of our coverage of EACS and Viva, as well as our daily news and features, at tctmd.com. I myself spent many a week this fall working on a feature story on the speedy sequencing of so-called foundational heart failure drugs and some of the debate around the proposed approaches for doing that. You can find my feature story, which ran this month, on the homepage. It is entitled Four Pillars Fast, Rapid Sequencing of HF Drugs Faces an Uphill Battle. The homepage is also where you'll find the latest episode of On Record, where I got a preview of the upcoming TCT meeting from Martin Leon and Juan Granada. 
TCT kicks off November 4th, of course, as a hybrid meeting out of Orlando, Florida, and we've actually already started our news coverage by watching some of the sneak peek key abstracts being released by the TCT meeting every Wednesday this month. A little more than a week later, the fully virtual AHA meeting starts, which was originally planned to take place in Boston. I really thought TCT and AHA would be my first in-person meeting since 2019. But traveling to the U.S. is not so simple for many of us just yet, and in my case is especially confounded by my mix-and-match vaccine dose, affectionately known around here as the Canadian cocktail, two parts science, one part hope. In the meantime, TCTMD's Todd Neal will be representing the team in style and in person in Orlando, while the rest of us will be glued to our screens and our Mickey Mouse hats for both TCT and then AHA. Please do get in touch if you have tips for either TCT or AHA, or if you have questions or complaints about our coverage. I will see you back here to recap all of that and more next month. Thanks for listening to Heart Sounds. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.